Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I am honored today to have as guest Malana Arif Kamal. Salam. I read uh, Shah Waliullah's Fawzul Kabir and portions of Suyuti's Itqan with the Malana, and he was patient with all my questions, and his instruction on the subject was truly praiseworthy. So I'm very, very happy and fortunate to have my teacher here with me. I want to start off by asking a bit about yourself, about your own background, what you've studied, what you teach, and where. Sure. Alhamdulillah. First off, Jazakum for having me. It's an honor to be here, uh, to be of some benefit. And so I've studied, I've, I've completed an Islamic studies course, which includes Hijaz and Hadith, Fiqh, Arabic, Tafsir, and other sciences as well. My field of concentration is Qira'at and Tajweed. So I currently teach at Dar Qasim, and at Dar Qasim, I'm primarily in the faculty of, I'm, I'm primarily in the Department of Quranic Recitation and Studies. So I teach Usul al-Tafsir, Ulum al-Quran, Tafsir Jalalain. I also teach Tajweed, Alhamdulillah, as well as Arabic. As for my field of concentration, which is Tajweed and Qira'at, from Allah's fadl, from the grace of Allah Ta'ala, I've been able to obtain multiple different ijazat in Qira'at, in the varied readings, and in the primary reading of the world, Hafs and Asim. So I've recited to uh, the Shaykh Al-Qur'a of America, Shaykh Walid Manisi, from whom I've uh, um, received ijazah in Tariq of Shatabiyya and uh, Tayyibah, which is itself will take, is quite detailed to explain what that is, but there are different ways to recite the Qur'an, even in the primary way that it's read, read in the entire world. So there are different ijazahs that are given for that. Uh, from Allah's grace, I've received uh, two main ijazat from the Shaykh al-Qur'an of America, from Shaykh Walid Manisi, as well as ijazah and sanad, meaning a chain of transmission from myself to the Prophet in these primary ways of recitation, as well as some of the main texts that are studied in Tajweed, such as uh, the Jazariya and Tuhfatul al-Tufal. Additionally, I've recited to um, other uh, other world-renowned Qur'an from, from Allah's grace, Amongst them is Shaykh Mubashir bin Abdul Aziz bin Sud. So one of the Shaykh al-Qura of the world just a few decades ago was Shaykh Abdul Aziz bin Sud. He's one of the teachers, of, one of the leaders in the field of Tajweed al-Qira'a today, Shaykh Ayman Suwaid. He was in Syria. And so his son, uh, who lived in Syria, then moved to Turkey, then moved to Montreal. So I was able to recite the entire Quran from Fatiha to Nas to him and also receive an ijazah in Hafs and Asim, which basically gives me the short, one of the shortest asanid in the world today, alhamdulillah. I've also recited for uh, ijazah in Hafs and Asim uh, to Shaykh Mustafa Pulba, to Shaykh Mustafa Muftah, as well as other prominent Qur'an. Amongst those who I've also recited to, for the Qira'at, Shaykh Uthman Khan, alhamdulillah. And currently, I'm reciting to one of my teachers in Egypt, Shaykh Hamid Ahmed, uh, there's different ways to learn the Qira'at, so I've, I have ijaz in all the ten Qira'at in the chain of Shatabiyya as well as Tayyibah. But now, I'm, so normally when Qira'at is studied, you study all of them together. You do one khatam, you said Fatiha to Nas, the entire Qur'an, and you do all of the varied readings as you go. So I was able to, to do two different uh, khatams, uh, one for Shatabiyya and the other one for Tayyibah. And now what I'm doing is I'm reciting 
I'm, I'm reciting the entire Quran for each Qira'ah individually. Currently, actually, I'm doing it for each Riwayah. Uh, and probably that's going to trans, that's eventually going to uh, transfer into each Qira'ah. Uh, I also have an opening jazat with uh, Sheikh, uh, the Sheikh Al Qur'an of Lebanon, Sheikh Al Qur'an of Beirut, Sheikh Mahmoud Akkawi, who is one of the most known Qur'an of the world today. I also have received uh, Shahada of Husn Tilawa from Sheikh Al Qur'an of Egypt, Sheikh Ahmed Samah Sarawi. I also have any, uh, an uh, opening jazmini I've began reciting but I haven't finished to one of the top uh, teachers in Madinat Manawara, Sheikh Abdullah Al Jarullah, uh, who I continue to benefit from and uh, continue to stay in contact with. So these are just some of what I've done, some of what I've done. Of course, it's all very impressive, and I'm sure the listeners are wondering, what are a lot of the stuff that Milana just said? And, and hopefully, I think throughout the episode, this will become more and more clear. Mm-hmm. But what should be clear right now is that Milana is very, very well equipped to handle all the questions that will be asked of him today. And again, it's an honor to sit here with you. Thank you so much. So I want to jump right in, and I wanted to ask if you could provide a short lecture there's a short discussion on the history of the Qur'an, its revelation, compilation, and spread. Sure. So obviously when it comes to the compilation of the Qur'an, that itself could be a lecture that can take one, two, three, four, five hours. But because we're in a podcast, I'll try to keep it as short as possible, including some of the main details. So when it comes to the compilation of the Qur'an, you can say that it, it took place in two main phases. Of course, one main phase was in the lifetime of the Prophet so as the Qur'an was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ during, throughout the duration of 23 years, the Prophet ﷺ would, recite, would receive the Qur'an from Jibreel ﷺ. Jibreel ﷺ would recite the Qur'an to the Prophet ﷺ. And in the beginning, the Prophet ﷺ would immediately recite back because he would have fear of perhaps forgetting. Allah Ta'ala then revealed a command in the Qur'an, let Jibreel ﷺ basically finish before you continue. لَا تُحَرِّكْ بِهِ لِسَانَكَ لِتَعْجَلَ Meaning, don't worry about forgetting. It is our job to make sure the Qur'an is compiled and it is preserved. That's going to remain true. So, let Jibreel alayhi recite the Qur'an to you, then you can repeat after him. So, as the Prophet ﷺ was receiving revelation from Jibreel alayhi throughout the period of 23 years, he would receive it and then dictate it to the companions. So, almost immediately after receiving it from Jibreel alayhi he would go to the companions, recite the Qur'an, and they would document it. This is why Zayd bin Thabit, who was one of the neighbors of the Prophet the Sahaba asked him, the companions of the Prophet asked him, tell us something about the Prophet And he said, what can I tell you? Every time he received wahi, every time he received revelation, he would come to me because I was his neighbor and I would record it. I would write it down. So uh, in a period of 23 years like this, the Quran was revealed uh, and preserved. The Sahaba and the Prophet would receive from Jibreel he would then dictate it to the companions, and then the companions themselves would write it and whatever was available to them, from leaves, rocks, bones, whatever they had available to them, they would write it. So it's mentioned the Mus'haf, the, 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 the Qur'an, the copy of the Qur'an for Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was a, a bag of parchments, a bag of leaves, a bag of stones, anything that they would write it, that they had the ability to write on. So they, it, was, it was basically gathered it was written down and documented in whatever form that they would normally document and write anything on. So like this, in the period of 23 years, the Prophet ﷺ dictated the Qur'an to the companions, and they wrote it down, so we know for sure that the entire Qur'an was preserved in the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, although the entire Qur'an was preserved in the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, it was never gathered in one place. 
So, and the reason why it wasn't gathered in one place is because there wasn't a need for it. The Sahaba, they had access to it. They, many of the companions in the time of the Prophet had memorized the Quran. There isn't an exact number about how many companions there were that memorized the Quran, but we know it is a lot. It's many. Um, and perhaps we can touch upon that a little bit later. But there is, there's, uh, the, the, the scholars of Ulum al-Quran, they say Jamman al which means a large number of companions have memorized the Quran. They don't mention a specific number, though. As opposed to the writers of the Quran. So those who were writing the Quran, copying the Quran, when, the, uh, when it would be revealed and the Prophet would come to them, for that there's a number. So although there's, it's not agreed upon. Some mention 13, others mention 20, and Ibn Kathir in his Bidayah wa Nihayah mentions 23. He says there were 23 writers of the Quran, meaning those who, were dictated, who the Prophet would come to dictate the Quran and they would write down what the Prophet was reciting. Um, and he mentions their names as well. So he says 23. But as for how many companions memorized the Quran in the time of the Prophet we know it is it's a large number, it was numerous among the Sahaba, although there's not a specific number that's given. So in the time of the Prophet we know the Quran uh, was preserved. <clears throat> now, um, in, in the early stage of the Khilaf Abu Bakr we know that there were some companions, there were some who were giving zakat the Prophet but zakat is, a, is an obligation that has to be given yearly. So some of them stopped giving zakat. And eventually, there's, there's a, large, uh, a long historical background behind it, but a war, Abu Bakr al-Lawan basically had to wage war against those who were uh, oppo uh, opposing one of the core tenets of faith. So in this battle, which is known as the Battle of Yamama, many of the memorizers of the Quran had become martyred. They had become shaheed, they had become martyred. Uh, they were martyred. And it's mentioned over 70 companions were martyred in that uh, battle that had memorized the Qur'an. So it occurred to Umar that we have to do something to preserve the Qur'an. There's a large number of companions who had memorized the Qur'an that have, were lost. They, they, we lost them in this battle. So he went to Abu Bakr and he advised him, you should compile the Qur'an. You should compile the Qur'an. You should compile the Qur'an. And he repeated this statement multiple times. And Abu Bakr repeated to him, how can I do what the Prophet didn't do? How can I do this and the Prophet didn't do it? So he, com com he continued to repeat it. He continued to repeat it until Abu Bakr said, I there came a point where I began to agree with Umar al-Lawan. I began to agree with him. And therefore we both came together and decided we would ask Zayd bin Thabit to be the one in charge to compile the Quran. That there are many reasons why Zayd bin Thabit was chosen. One of them was because he was a youth who was known to be upright in character. He was never accused of anything unmoral. Number, uh, number two, he, was, uh, he had memorized the Qur'an in the lifetime of the Prophet He was known to have writ uh, written the Qur'an in the lifetime of the Prophet He was known, as, as I mentioned, he was known to be the neighbor of the Prophet So these are all like... Um, and there's another, one of the main reasons, which we can talk about this, we'll talk about this later on when we get into the Qira'at, the variant readings, is that he witnessed, the, when he was, um, he was aware of the last recitation the Prophet ﷺ had with Jibreel alayhi salam. So he, after the Prophet ﷺ did this final revision with Jibreel alayhi salam, in the year that he passed away, uh, Zayd and Thabit heard that recitation after he revised it with Jibreel So all of these qualities combined made Zayd bin Thabit perhaps one of the most qualified, if not most qualified companion to be in charge of this task. 
So he began, and he had his criteria. Um, and obviously, he was he was doing it under the supervision of the, the, the senior companions. So his criteria, which it was in agreement with other companions, was that everyone had to bring parchments of Quran. Whatever they had written down, there were announcements being made in the street, announcements being made in the masjid. If you have anything of the Quran written down, bring it. So Zayd bin Thabit had rigorous ways of confirming everything that was brought. So more or less, he said that he himself was Hafiz of the Quran, so he knew the entire Quran. But on top of that, he had two other companions. So if someone brought a, a, a parchment of the Quran, there had to be two other witnesses that verified that uh, this was that whatever was written was written in the presence of the Prophet So when in, when the Sahaba were writing, they weren't just writing what they thought the Quran was. After hearing it from the Prophet they were, they had to actually read back the way that they are writing the Quran on whatever they are writing it on, the parchments, the leaves, whatever it was. So therefore, we say even the writing of the Quran is revelatory. And this is the opinion of the majority that if you look at the Quran and you scrutinize the writing of the Quran, you'll find that there are words that are written in a way that we don't write Arabic today. And that is purpose. For that, for that reason, for that we say the writing of the Quran is also revelatory. That itself is a whole science. The science of Rasm of the Quran. So there had to be two witnesses on top of the one who was bringing the parchment that, that testified that this ayah, that this verse, was written in the time in the presence of the Prophet and that they, he had read it back to the Prophet On top of the fact that Zayd bin Thabit himself was Hafiz, he was aware of that ayah. So like this, they basically gathered the entire Quran. And when they gathered the entire Quran, Abu Bakr and what he did was his compilation was different than the compilation that we will discuss very uh, shortly, the compilation of Uthman Law'an, in the sense that his compilation wasn't the entire Quran being put in between two covers. So there, there's a, a lot of detail to this statement, but I'm just summarizing it uh, as brief as I can. So there are different opinions as to how the compilation of Abu Bakr Law'an was. Was the entire Quran put in between two covers or was it not? Dominant opinion is that it was not that you had multiple scrolls and the com the combination of all those scrolls was the Qur'an. Okay, So uh, this was done in the time of Abu Bakr al-La'an where the entire Qur'an was gathered in between, in multiple scrolls. Okay, And um, and at the same time, the Sahaba, when they had their own personal copies of the Qur'an, they were allowed to keep those personal copies as reference for themselves. But the authoritative copy of the Quran was was that which was with Abu Bakr al at that time. So the time of Umar al came, and <clears throat> he obviously had sent Sahaba to teach the Quran different parts, different areas in the world, Syria, Palestine, different places. There was no issue that arose here. Everything basically that took place in time of Abu Bakr al was just continuing. The compilation of the Quran, they didn't, they didn't need to be another compilation of the Quran. However, in the time of Uthman, عن, we had something new taking place, which was that Hudhafat ibn al-Yaman, he says that he was in an, exp, in, in, in an exposition where he was sent to Azribijan, Azribijan, and they were now, uh, there, so there were some companions who were known to be the teachers of all the other companions. Okay? 
So amongst these companions was Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. And so when it comes to like the, the Qur'an, and even the Qur'an won't reach us today, because we know it reaches us through a chain of transmission. Although there were hundreds, there were thousands of companions, all of the chains of transmission of the Qur'an today revolve around eight companions. All of them go back to eight companions, and other companions were students of these eight companions. And this has all been documented. Now, these, these, these companions, we can name them some, uh, Umar bin Khattab, Uthman, uh, Ali, Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Zayd ibn Thabit, ibn Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Abu Darda, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, radiallahu anhum, ajma'in. They're all like, they're all, and they, were, they weren't, uh, there were other companions who were also known as scholars of the Qur'an, but the chain of transmission of the Qur'an in the way that it reaches today revolves around these eight companions. So we know that some companions were the teachers of other companions. Now, as um, the companions had teachers, who were other companions, they were teaching their students the Qur'an in a way that they learned it from the Prophet And we know that the way the companions learned the, way, uh, learned the Qur'an from the Prophet was not all equal. They had, they came from, uh, they had different backgrounds. They were familiar with different dialects. So the Prophet was teaching them in a way that was easiest for them. Meaning he was teaching them the Qur'an that was according to their dialect. And this is because the Qur'an was revealed to the Prophet in that way. So he wasn't just coming up with it on his own. When Jibreel salam was revealing the Qur'an, he was revealing the Qur'an in multiple ways. And even, meaning when I say multiple ways, like a, a one word in the Qur'an can, can be read multiple ways. Um, and all of the ways that the word could be read, Jibreel salam was teaching the Prophet And the Prophet would teach the Sahaba of the way that he knew would be easiest for them to learn. Because it was perhaps the way that they were, the word that they were familiar with in their dialect. So, when the Sahaba began interacting with one another, they were all they were all not aware of these different dialects or these different recitations, these different ways the Prophet taught them. So there are many stories that indicate this. Some of these some of these differences actually took place in the lifetime of the Prophet, and he clarified it. So, for example, like two incidents I can mention: Ubay ibn Ka'ab, and he says that I was sitting in the masjid, and a companion came in the masjid, and he recited, he began praying. And of course, in his prayer, he began reciting Quran. And he began reciting Quran, and we know Ubay ibn Ka'ab had memorized the Quran, and he learned it from the Prophet. He says he was reciting the Quran in a way the Prophet didn't teach me. And then another companion comes in the masjid, and he begins his salah, and he begins reciting Quran in a way that was different than the other companion. And it was different than the way that Ubay ibn Ka'ab learned directly from the Prophet. So now you have three different ways. As soon as they both finish their salah, Ubay ibn Ka'bah gathers both of them and he says, we have to go to the Prophet We have to confirm what you did was correct. So he went to the Prophet he told them what he had experienced. And so the Prophet told each one of them to recite. And after each one of them recited, the Prophet said, Hakada unzilat. The Quran was revealed all of these ways. I taught, them, I taught you this way. This is because Jibreel revealed the Quran to me in these ways. So this satisfied the confusion of Ubay ibn Ka'ab. This also took place with Umar an and Hisham bin Hakim, other companions as well. But not all the companions are aware of these differences. So now when Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman is on this expedition and the students and some of the famous companions who are teachers of the Qur'an and are interacting with one another, they're seeing that their station of the Qur'an is different. And they obviously weren't, they didn't know how to handle that. When it took place in the time of the Prophet they went directly to him and he clarified. 
So as these companions are hearing these different recitations, they're thinking that someone is changing the Quran. The students of Abu Musa al-Shari are saying, the students of the other companion changing the Quran, and now this is how they're reacting to one another. Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman sees this and he goes to Uthman al-Lawan, we have to, he travels back to Madinah to Munawwara and he says, we have to do something, we have to rescue the Ummah, basically rescue your Ummah, otherwise they will differ like the Jews and Christians differed in their book. So Uthman al-Lawan stands up, he gives a sermon, and he basically says that we have to gather the Ummah on one, one script of the Quran. So he chooses four main companions and they form a committee of 12 companions, more or less. And what they do is they form a script. Okay, they form a script according to what they knew was the final recitation of the Prophet with Jibreel Because that final, there's a lot of detail here. I'm just making, I'm mentioning this as, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning this with, uh, in as brief as possible, uh, as briefly as I can. Because there's a lot of detail I can go into, even what I'm about to mention. But I'm just going to say, like, what's the book? Some of the books mentioned. <clears throat> so they were companioning. They were coming up with a script that was according to the last rest, last recitation that the Prophet had with Jibril And how were they familiar with what the last recitation of the Prophet was? How were they familiar with what that revision was? What it entailed? Because after the Prophet revised the Quran with Jibreel in the year that he passed away, he taught companions to him. He taught companions, Zayd and Thabit. They heard the recitation of the Prophet, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, heard the recitation of the Prophet as well as their companions. So they all came together basically and came up with a script that facilitated the last recitation that the Prophet had with Jibreel. Now, I mentioned that the Prophet learned the Quran in different ways from Jibreel So what we know is that revel that revision that took place between the Prophet and Jibreel it more or less included all those different ways. There's a lot of detail I can mention here as well, but I'm gonna keep it very simple. So there's about, now when we say what the differences in the Quran, we can say there are 2,000, approximately 2,000 words in the Quran that can be recited differently. Where the Prophet Jibreel came and revealed different ways to recite those words, according to the dialect of the Sahaba, so on and so forth. So when the Sahaba were writing, when they were compiling the script of the Quran, they compiled it in a way that facilitated all those differences that existed in those 2,000 words, which is a genius, absolutely. They were geniuses how, how they did that. Additionally, there were some differences in the, different, uh, in the ways the word could be read, and also there were differences that would entail extra words or an extra letter in one place, and uh, uh, there not being an extra letter in another place. And this is all because of the way that they learned from the Prophet ﷺ, which would mean that when the copies were made, and there's a difference of opinion how many copies there were made, the dominant opinion seems to be five, according to what Imam Suyuti and others mentioned, that these five copies had about 49 places where there were differences, meaning, where one copy had a wow that the other copy didn't, or one copy had an ahua that the other copy didn't. And this is because it was all according to the way the Prophet taught the companions, and that was according to the way Jibreel revealed the Quran to the Prophet. Now, so to summarize, the five copies that were made, they facilitated the 49 differences where there are some extra, like an extra wow or ahua, and it also facilitated the differences that the 2,000 words could be read. 
So now Uthman al-Lawan compiles these uh, uh, scripts which facilitates all of these uh, differences. And he tells the Sahaba, you must, in a dignified way, dis discard of your Mus'haf. Because their Mus'haf, the way that the, the, the her personal copies of the companions, when it came to their personal copies of the Qur'an, it had certain things that they included in it by way of tafsir. They included certain additions in the Qur'an, their personal copies of the Qur'an, which was tafsir. So he didn't want any more confusion. Because he felt that if other people read those, read those copies of the Qur'an, then they might read those words that you wrote as tafsir. They may see this Qur'an, it'll, it'll lead to another fitna. So he had all of them disregard in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a graceful way the Qur'an, which was by burning it. Uh, right. So it wasn't like what you and I envision when we think of burning. But it was, it was the most dignified way that they could disregard the Qur'an at that time. And just take these five copies of the Qur'an as the authority. <clears throat> now these five copies of the Qur'an were more or less um, sent to different places in the world with a teacher. And it was sent to a place, so each Mus'haf was sent to a place that that nation would be familiar with in terms of if there is a companion, Umar al he sent companions to, let's say, Syria. You know, he sent companions to Syria, he sent companions to Palestine. Right, so he sent Masahif there. So there were basically five cities where he sent. Uh, uh, he's sent him to these cities, but Uthman Allah sent him to five cities: Kufa, Basra, which is modern-day Iraq, um, uh, Syria, Mecca, and Medina, more or less. So he sent a copy to each city that he felt that the people in that city would be most familiar with already because of the way the companion that was stationed there was teaching the Quran. So like this, more or less. Uh, uh, the companions now began teaching the Quran and at this time they're familiar with the Qira'at other different ways of reciting the Quran and this was the way that Uthman felt would be best for the Ummah to avoid avoid dispute and like that the, the Quran was compiled okay there's more to mention as well but that's as brief as I can make it to that thank you so very much I have uh, several follow-up questions Sure. So kind of going back to the initial dialectical differences that yeah. the Prophet would have said these uh, recitations in. Right. When speaking to each other, wouldn't that companions have known that there is these kind of dialectical differences amongst each other? But that is, they, they would have, they perhaps would have been familiar with it, but that doesn't mean that the, that they would be familiar with the Qur'an was revealed to them. Hmm. Because the Qur'an would not be based off of their own ijtihad. It wouldn't be that they could say, okay, here is this word that could be read in the Qur'an. I'm familiar with this, so I'm just going to read it like this. No, it had to be according to the way the Prophet taught them. Okay. And the way the Prophet would confirm, yes, this is Quran. So thank you for your introduction. I wanted to ask, what was the nature of transmission? And I ask this because if there were dialectical differences and there were individuals who had different dialects sitting in the company of the Prophet and he was teaching them the Quran, would he be teaching each group uh, according to their own dialect? Or how exactly would the Qur'an be transmitted to these individuals? So that's a very good question. So when a verse came down, the Prophet ﷺ was aware of all of the various ways that it could be recited. And we know this from many ahadith. Furthermore, the scholars agree that when it comes to different ways, one word could be read. The Prophet ﷺ was revising all of those different ways with Jibreel ﷺ during Ramadan. So we know that Every Ramadan, the Prophet ﷺ was revised in the Qur'an with Jibreel ﷺ. And when it comes to like the different ways 
uh, a word or the Quran can be read. There's many of the scholars say that there's uh, about 2,000 words that can be read in different ways. So what we say is all of these 2,000 words and the different ways that they could be read, the Prophet ﷺ was aware of all of those differences. All those differences were revealed to the Prophet ﷺ. And during the month of Ramadan when the Prophet ﷺ was revising the Qur'an with Jibreel ﷺ, who is revising all of those different ways for the 2,000 words with Jibreel ﷺ every year. You can find these discussions in Abu Amr al-Dani's work, Jami al-Bayan, and other commentaries of Hadith, Imam Bukhari, uh, the commentaries in Imam Bukhari, Ibn Hajar Asqalani talks about this as well. And there's basically an agreement, agreement from, uh, uh, that the scholars agree that when it comes to these different words, the Prophet was revising all of them with Jibreel alayhi salam. So that's when the Prophet sallallahu was teaching the companions one verse. He didn't teach all the companions one verse the same way. The Prophet ﷺ was choosing to teach them based off of what he felt was easiest for them. That's what we know. That's like the main principle. That the, the Prophet ﷺ was teaching a companion according to what he felt was easiest for them. Sometimes that depended on their dialect. As we can, Actually, we can say many times that depended on the dialect. But at times it didn't. So, for example, we have the story of Umar and Hisham bin Hakim. They both learned Surah Al-Furqan from the Prophet and they both were from the same tribe, so they had the same di- the same dialect. However, when Umar heard Hisham bin Hakim reciting the Quran, reciting Surah Al-Furqan, he noticed that it was different from the way that the Prophet taught him. And when they both went to the Prophet they both, again, they both were taught Surah Al-Furqan directly from the Prophet they both recited at that point when they both were in front of Prophet they both recited Surah Al-Furqan back to the Prophet or portions of it. And the Prophet said to both, this is how the Quran was revealed. So we know that the Prophet taught both of them differently, although their dialect was the same, and they were from the same tribe. So sometimes the different ways the Prophet was teaching companions was dependent on their dialect, but at times we can understand from this story that it wasn't. So what, why was the Prophet teaching companions different ways? Well, because it was based off of what he felt was easiest for them. This is one of the reasons why the Qur'an was revealed in different ways. So when we say there are 2,000 words that we read in different ways, why were they revealed in different ways? Why were they not revealed in one way? Well, they were revealed in different ways to facilitate ease for the companions. If they were all to be revealed just in one way, then it would have been difficult for all the companions because... For example, if a word was revealed in one way, it would be a one tribe or one a group of people would be familiar with the word because it exists in their dialect, but another wouldn't. So therefore, to make it easy for all the companions, these 2,000 words were revealed in their different ways. Um, but So we understand from that that the principle behind revealing the Qur'an in different ways was ease. And therefore, that's also how the Prophet ﷺ was teaching the companions. He knew each one of them intimately. He knew them very well. Therefore, he knew what the best way to teach them the Qur'an was as well. Furthermore, when they would teach the Qur'an to each other, they taught the Qur'an to the companions who learned the Qur'an directly from the Prophet ﷺ. They were teaching it to others according to the way they learned directly from the Prophet ﷺ, and not according to their own ijtihad. They were only teaching what they had learned directly from the Prophet Now sometimes 
the Prophet ﷺ taught companions multiple ways. This is also something that we have to be aware of. So if the Prophet ﷺ was teaching a companion a surah or an ayah, and in that ayah is one of those 2,000 words that can be read in different ways, sometimes the Prophet ﷺ would teach the companion multiple ways that that one word could be read. And this is highlighted in one of the stories that Imam Zarqani mentions in Manahil al-Urfan, about Abu Darda, that once Abu Darda was teaching uh, Surah Dukhan, and he came across the ayah, Ta'amul Athim, and the person he was teaching the Quran to, the person who was teaching this ayah to, had difficulty saying Athim. Abu Darda, radiallahu kept repeating it, and his student kept having difficulty. So Abu Darda then said, Okay, if you're having difficulty saying Ta'amul Athim, then say Ta'amul Fajr. Imam Sarqani says the reason why he then taught him Ta'amul Fajr was because he learned both ways from the Prophet. And once he saw, okay, he's having difficulty saying Athim, he taught him Ta'amul Fajr because he learned the other way from the Prophet. So this is also how they were teaching Quran uh, to one another. So I believe that answers your question. Thank you. And it does. And I, I just a quick follow up on that. If, for example, there's the word um, a theme that you had mentioned. The reasons that make that word difficult to pronounce for that particular individual, if those reasons were present in other words, then would those other words also have had a, uh, a variant? I'm assuming that all these variants are incorporated in the 2000. That's that's correct. That's correct. So we you would say that that if the same level of difficulty that existed between Athim uh, and Fajr exists in other words, and there would be different ways that those other words could be read. However, we would say, and not we would say, but rather we, we understand from analyzing historical facts and the way that the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet uh, preserved the Quran, was that some of those ways were facilitated, mm-hmm, and therefore it, it, that would mean that there are many differences. However, many of those ways be, became abrogated. Because in the beginning of Islam, the need of ease existed. So there's a very famous principle that one of my teachers taught us when we were studying hadith, which was which means ease is facilitated when legislation is being revealed. right? So likewise, when the Quran is being revealed, there was ease that was facilitated. So if a word was difficult to uh, recite, then the Prophet ﷺ was aware of different ways that it could be recited. However, every year, the Prophet ﷺ would recite with Jibreel ﷺ. Well, actually, what we know is the last year the Prophet ﷺ re- uh, revised the Qur'an with Jibreel ﷺ was to be understood as the final uh, revelation. So therefore, if there were some of these words that existed early on, and the Prophet ﷺ didn't revise those ways with Jibreel ﷺ in his final revision, then we understand that they were abrogated. So although, yes, we can say that if the same level of difficulty exists in other words, those other words would have would have been revealed in different ways and Sahamo could have recited those words in those different ways. However, what we understand from the historical context, and this is, Ibn al-Jazin mentions this is in his Nashaf al-Qira'at al-Ashur, as well as many other books, Abu Amr al-Dani mentions this in his Jami' al-Bayan, that many of these ways that were facilitated 
became abrogated in the final revision that the Prophet had with Jibreel And yes. the, the, the words might have been abrogated, but I wonder the difficulty in pronouncing them, uh, would that still have persisted or were the people for whom these variant words uh, you know, were given as options, did they eventually learn how to pronounce properly? Very good question. That's correct. So Ibn al-Jazri, rahimahullah, he mentions this in his Nashf al-Qara'at al-Ashr as well as others, that that's correct. That in the beginning, that lack of familiarity led to difficulty, but eventually they became familiar with it and the difficulty didn't exist anymore. That's correct. And now I want to move on to kind of, I guess, the bulk of, of, of what we're going to discuss today, and that's about the variant recitations. So what are these variant recitations and, and where do they come from? Thank you. So, first off, this is a question that we can discuss over many, many hours. I spent many classes at Dar Qasim going over the details of this question. However, inshallah, I'll try to answer in brief, including many of the main details. So, the variant recitations are more or less different combinations of the ways that the Prophet taught Quran to the companions. So, we know, as I mentioned earlier, and actually you asked, I only mentioned one incident. But we know that the Prophet taught Qur'an to the companions in different ways. So there are many stories that uh, highlight this fact. One of them was the story of Umar and Hisham bin Hakim. There's another story of Ubay ibn Ka'b that once he was in the masjid um, and another companion came and began reciting Qur'an in Salah. Ubay ibn Ka'b heard his recitation. And he was familiar with what he was reciting because he had learned that directly from the Prophet um, But it was different from the way that the Prophet taught him that surah. And then a third person came and uh, engaged in salah and recited the Quran in a way that was different than the others. So altogether we know that there are, from this story, three different ways that the Prophet taught the companions. Because Ubay ibn Ka'b was familiar with the Quran that both companions recited. And he saw that it was different from the way that the Prophet taught him. So we understand from that that the Prophet taught companions in different ways. So in the early generations, there were many variant recitations. Many variant recitations. When we analyze like the, uh, who was the first to write on the variant recitations, the Qiraat, there are you know differences of opinion regarding this. But many of the historians say that it was uh, Abu Qasim. Abu um, Qasim bin Salam that he wrote uh, Abu Ubaid bin Qasim as Salam he wrote on 25 Qiraat this is the most famous opinion although Ibn al-Jazri he says that the first right on the Qiraat was Abu Hatim al-Sijistani who was very close to the um, time period of Abu Ubaid bin Qasim as Salam so in the, in the first second and third centuries there were many variant recitations why? Because the Sahaba were teaching the Tabi'een. The Tabi'een were teaching their students. And in the first three centuries, there were many ways that they were teaching uh, one another. However, in the fourth century, a scholar by the name of Abu Bakr bin Mujahid, he came and he wrote a book where he documented seven varied recitations. Now again, he wasn't the first person to write in the Qira'at. There's a very famous, uh, a very nice book that, that I have that talks about the historical you know, uh, timeline of compilations in the field of Qira'at. And he actually says that uh, Abu Bakr ibn Mujahid's work was 24. It was the 24th work that was written. But either way, 
despite that, his book was considered to be the first that wrote on the seven qira'at, and it became the most famous work. So what Abu Bakr ibn Mujahid did was he analyzed the five main cities that Qur'an was being taught. So namely, Kufa, Basra, Sham, Mecca, Mukarramah, Madinah, Munawwara. And he looked at, he saw that, okay, there are many variant recitations that exist within these five cities. But he wanted to make memorization of the variant recitations easy. And he wanted to make sure people could uh, understand them well as, and teach them easy as well. So he looked at these five cities and he identified the main teachers in these five cities. Now, how did he identify them, the main teachers in these cities? The way he identified them was he looked at, okay, which recitation is everyone agreeing upon? Which recitation in each city is there a consensus that this teacher is the most famous or um, that everyone is studying according to the way that he's teaching the Quran? So he took that and he also added to it three conditions, which we'll talk about um, shortly. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, and he documented the seven qira'at. He took one reciter from each city, except Kufa. He documented three reciters from Kufa. And therefore, he wrote a book called Kitabu Saba'a, uh, the book on seven recitations. And because Abu Bakr bin Mujahid was himself a very famous figure, he was an authoritative figure. When he wrote this book, everyone basically accepted it. And when they looked at his book and the seven recitations that he had documented within these within this book, they ended up learning these seven and leaving the other variant recitations. So in this manner, the seven recitations became very, very famous. And they were the ones that were being taught in the subsequent generations the most. So he documented these seven recitations. And after him, many of the scholars of Qira'at, they used this book as their basis. And they also documented seven Qira'at. So again, there are like so many works that we can mention and so many scholars within these generations that we can mention. But I'm just going to mention a few, some of the most famous. So like in the 5th century, there was a very, very famous scholar by the name of Abu Amr al-Dani. He wrote a book called Taysir. And in his Taysir, he wrote on seven qira'at. Ibn al-Jazizi praises this work. Everyone praises this work. And he wrote on the seven qira'at that Abu Bakr bin Mujahid documented. After him, Imam Shatabi came and wrote his famous poem, Shatabiyya, where he also documented seven qira'at. And he was basing his work off of Abu Amr al-Dani's work, Kitab al-Taysir. So in this manner, the seven qira'at became the most famous. Now that doesn't mean that the other qira'at didn't exist. So although Abu, Amr, uh, Abu Bakr bin Mujahid in the 4th century, he documented these seven it became the most famous. There are other recitations that still existed, and other recitations that people were still teaching. So in the 5th century, a man by the name of Ibn al-Mihran al-Asbahani, he wrote a book called Al-Ghaya fil-Ashara. He wrote on 10 qira'at. And there were some who wrote on six qira'at and others who wrote on eight qira'at. But the most famous was the seven and uh, ten was also there. So up until Ibn al-Jazir's time, seven was basically the most famous. However, Ibn al-Jazir, he came and he documented ten qira'at. 
So the same seven that Imam Shatabi did, the same seven that Abu Amr al-Dani did, which were the same seven that Abu Bakr al-Mujahid documented, except he added three to them. Now, why did he add three? He added three because, as I mentioned, Abu Bakr al-Mujahid and others who wrote on seven Qur'at, they identified three conditions which um, qualified a recitation to be valid. Um, and we'll talk about that very briefly. I just want to, I don't want to mix two discussions together. So Ibn al-Jazidi saw, okay, these three conditions that exist, right, that are qualifying a recitation to be valid, also, therefore, will qualify three more recitations to be valid. And he writes in his book, Al-Munjid al-Muqri'in, he says the three that he added were recitations that he learned from all of his teachers, sorry, many of his teachers, and he saw that they existed in the early time period. So they were, and they were being passed on from generation to generation as Quran. So he says, we have to, we have to identify these recitations as well, as well as document them. So he wrote on, uh, he wrote a book called Tayyibah, uh, also Durra, where he documented the three extra recitations above the seven. And so very, and very like, in brief, this is what the uh, seven, this is what the qira'at are, uh, the very recitations are. Now, there are more details to it as well. If you like, I can share those details as in, in regards to how, like, a qira'at was formed. Um, so, yes, go ahead. So, uh, before we move on, I wanted to ask, yes. um, there are different types, there's an authentication process, and then there's different conditions what are some of these conditions and if a certain recitation meets two out of the three uh, or one out of the three um, are there are there is there a technical terminology for 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 these recitations that don't quite meet all the conditions okay very good question so what we find is early on in about the third century also we identified that there were three conditions that the earlier scholars documented that qualified the recitation to be valid. Amongst the first to write on them was Imam Tabari, although he only identified two. Imam Tabari, uh, who is an early third century scholar, he identified only two conditions, which was that the recitation had to conform to the continental skeleton, the rasam, and number two, it had to be a recitation that had a authentic chain and was passed on from generation to generation as Qur'an. These are the two conditions Imam Tabri identified. After Imam Tabri's generation, so even Imam Tabri's in the third generation, also in the third generation as well as the subsequent generation generations, there were scholars who wrote on the conditions that needed to exist in order for recitation to be valid. And they acknowledged the two that Imam Tabri identified, but they added a third, which was that the recitation had to be consistent with Arabic grammar. Okay. So we find that, and these are the three conditions that I was mentioning that Abu Bakr al-Mujahid used. So he looked at all the cities, which are the famous recitations and the recitations that all the people in the city agree upon. And then number two, these three, which recitations meet these three criteria. Therefore, he came up with uh, the seven. So uh, he was in the fourth century. Abu Bakr al-Mujahid, he acknowledged these four, as well as everyone who comes after him. So there's a long his, historical background 
when it comes to these three conditions. But we can say this discussion extends from the third generation all the way to the eighth generation and beyond that. And in each one of these generations, everyone is identifying these three conditions in order for a recitation, in order for Qur'an to be valid. Again, the three are that the recitation has to conform the, to the consonantal skeleton, the Qur'an, the Rasam, that was formed by those companions in the time of Uthman, radiallahu anhu. Okay, number one. Number two, that it has to have a sound chain. Meaning it has to um, be passed on from generation to generation with a sound chain as Quran. And number three, that it has to be consistent with Arabic grammar. So um, these are the three conditions that all of the scholars and the generations say have to exist in a recitation in order for the recitation to be valid. Now this is very important. Why? Because we find that there were some scholars within these generations who didn't adhere to these three. And if the early scholars didn't identify these three conditions, then it could have led to a big fitna. But well, may Allah Ta'ala reward the, the, the scholars from the early generations. They made sure that the signs of Qira'at was codified early on in the most authentic manner. So there was a scholar by the name of Ibn Shanabun who is to be understood and recognized in a positive light. He's, he should be understood as a great contributor to the science of Qira'at and Tajweed. However, there was, there's a story that Imam, Imam Shatli mentions, Ibn al-Jazri mentions, and other mention about him, um, which basically uh, shows the importance of these three conditions. So what Ibn Chanabuz was doing was if he found a if he found a narration, for example, in a book that said Ubay ibn Ka'ab used to recite the Quran, he used to recite a verse in a particular manner. Or Abdullah ibn Mas'ud used to recite a verse of the Quran in a particular manner. So in that narration there could be an additional word. It doesn't conform to these three conditions. It doesn't conform to the continental skeleton of the Quran. It doesn't even have a sound chain of transmission. But he said that, okay, if there's a narration that exists that says, Ubay ibn Ka'ab used to recite the Quran in a particular way. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud used to recite the Quran in a particular way. He felt that it was valid. And therefore, he would teach the Quran in that manner. And he would also recite the Quran in that manner in Salah. So many, many, him being a famous figure in his time, therefore, many identified and saw what he was doing. So they complained to Abu Bakr ibn Mujahid. The same Abu Bakr ibn Mujahid wrote the book on the seven uh, Qiraat. He himself was, as I mentioned, an authoritative figure, and he had uh, a position. So he was the one who was choosing the rest teachers of the Quran in the particular masajid, and he was to he was understood to be the qadi, the like judge, when it come when it, when it came to the science of Qiraat and Tajud. So when people were complaining to him about what Ibn Shanabuz was doing, he called Ibn Shanabuz and he said, is this correct? Is this true that you're reciting the Quran in this way? He acknowledged. He said, yes. Abu Bakr al-Mujahid then said, you must stop because this is incorrect. He didn't, he didn't accept. Ibn Shanabuz said, no. Abu, Abu Bakr al-Mujahid then said again, you must stop. Ibn Shanabuz said, no. And this back and forth took place a few times until Abu Bakr al-Mujahid identified that he wasn't going to change his ways. So then he told him that if you do not, if you do not stop, we will flog you. So Ibn Chanabuth still didn't accept. So they began flogging Ibn Chanabuth until he accepted. 
and then he said, okay, I will stop teaching the Quran in this manner. So they went, the scholars of the early generations went to that extent to make sure that the, the Quran was preserved. Now the natural question is, okay, if there is a narration that says Ubay ibn Ka'ab was in the Quran in a particular way, or Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was inside the Quran in a particular way, what is wrong with that? I mean, basically, what is wrong with what Ibn, Ibn Shanabuth was doing? The answer to that is that although there is a narration that exists that Ubay ibn Ka'ab used to recite a verse in a particular way, or Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was reciting uh, an ayah a, a, a particular way, what we know is that if that way was not to have been abrogated, then the companions would have facilitated it in the continental skeleton that they formed in the time of Uthman al-Lawan. However, if they did not include it, that meant that they also understood that this reading was abrogated. So what Ibn Shanabuth was doing was he was reciting in a way that was not facilitated to a continental skeleton. So we understand from that that it was a recitation that was abrogated and cannot be passed on as a valid way to recite the Quran. So Abu Bakr and Mujahid and others made sure that these, you know, incorrect ways of reciting the Quran were not transmitted from generation to generation. So they went to this extent to make sure. So they, they identified these two conditions and it was a monumental contribution that they gave to the Ummah. Additionally, there were others that uh, Ibn al-Jazri, rahimahullah, uh, Abu Amr al-Dani and others talk about a scholar by the name of a man by the name of Ibn Muqsam. So he, what he would do was he looked at the continental skeleton in the Quran and he said, okay, any way that is grammatically valid to recite the Quran according to the continental skeleton is a way that we can recite the Quran, even if it does not have a chain, even if it does not have that authentic chain that this way is being transmitted from generation to generation to. So he began reciting the Qur'an in any way that was valid grammatically. So if you look at the early works of I'arab al-Qur'an, like Imam Farra, who is a giant, right? He himself was a student of Imam Kisa'i, who is one of the seven Qurra that Abu Bakr and Mujahid documented. And he's also a student of Imam uh, Shu'ba. So he himself was um, a high-level uh, scholar of the Qur'at and uh, Tajweed and grammar, so on and so forth. So he identifies in his book Ma'an al-Qur'an, he says for Surah Al-Fatiha, like the word, the, the verse, Alhamdulillah, he says this word, Alhamdulillah, the words, Alhamdulillah, they used to be recited in multiple ways. People were reciting it as Alhamdulillah, they're also reciting it as Alhamdulillah, they're also reciting it as Alhamdulillah. And why was this being, why was this taking place? Because of what Ibn Nuqsam was uh, saying, that all of these ways are valid grammatically. However, there's no chain that transmits this. We, we can't connect this recitation to being passed on from any of the companions. Therefore, it wasn't taught by the Prophet ﷺ. So Ibn Nuqsam came and began reciting the Quran like this, and um, we find it being documented in earlier works. Other works also documented uh, this, uh, these recitations, but it was absolutely invalid. So he was also reprehended for teaching the Quran like this. So uh, we find that uh, the Quran, the Qira'at were authenticated and canonized with these three conditions. Understood. And just uh, quickly, just wanted to touch upon that story of uh, Ibn Shanabuth. 
Now, presumably, he was reciting one of those recitations of these companions, which those companions themselves did not try to reconcile with the uh, with the with the continental skeleton. Correct. That is correct. Um, uh, and despite that, you know, these were not really reconciled. I mean, there's narrations of those ways of reciting were still being passed on. So Ibn Shanbud, I guess, didn't know then that um, an abrogation had taken place or maybe he just wasn't of the same opinion that the abrogation was, you know, something that needed to be considered when uh, reciting the Qur'an. So I was wondering, what is Ibn Shanabudha's um, uh, reasoning? So he felt, he his uh, reasoning according to what is identified by Ibn al-Jazari and others is that, um, uh, that it doesn't have to be transmitted through an authentic chain. So he, he had the two conditions, but his recitation didn't conform to the third, which was, okay, the third condition was that it had to be transmitted with an authentic chain. So his condition was that it didn't have to be an authentic chain. It, it, uh, so therefore, it can, uh, and if, it, if the recitation is not transmitted with an authentic chain, it can still be recited as Qur'an, which was obviously not agreed upon for the reasons that we see, and um, incorrect. So that's, that's what he, his view was. Okay, and I just wanted to move on to uh, ask quickly, um, who were these uh, major Qurra? Uh, Actually, before before you asked that, I realized you had asked a question, but I wasn't able to, or I had forgotten to uh, talk about it. So you had asked um, if a recitation doesn't conform to these three conditions, what is it termed, correct? Yes, I didn't yes. get a chance to talk about that. Very good. So what we've, if, if a recitation... If a recitation does not conform to these three conditions, then it is considered a shav qira'an. It's considered a rare a recitation. So it could also be considered an invalid recitation, okay? Meaning the recitation of Ibn Nuqsam was absolutely invalid. We don't even consider that to be a rare recitation. It's not even a shav recitation. So if the condition that is missing is that it doesn't conform, it, that it's not being transmitted through a, a chain, or if multiple conditions are missing, then it's considered an invalid recitation. If one of the two is missing, meaning it does have a sound chain, but it doesn't conform to the continental skeleton, and it, it is in uh, consistency with every grammar, it's considered a shaf qiran. Additionally, if it um, does not, if it's um, if it conforms to the continental skeleton of the Quran. And it is in consistency with Arabic grammar. However, it is not passed on with a, it's not transmitted with a sound chain. It's also considered a shav qira'an. So shav qira'an means that uh, it wasn't being passed on from generation to generation as Qur'an. We can perhaps say that um, some were reciting it in this manner early on, right? But it wasn't being passed on from generation to generation as Qur'an. Ibn al-Jazri, he identifies that um, there are many benefits to, uh, to, to analyzing the Shah al-Qira'at and to acknowledging the Shah al-Qira'at. So we find, and he mentions in his Nashbu al-Qira'at al-Ashr, like eight to ten benefits that the Qira'at uh, have when you analyze them against one another. So he says, in the Shah al-Qira'at, one benefit that uh, acknowledging the Shah al-Qira'at has is that it can give you a better understanding of aqidah. It can also give you a better understanding of tafsir of the Qur'an. 
So, for example, there's an ayah in Surah Insan. وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَ ثَمَّ رَأَيْتَ نَعِيمًا وَمُلْكًا كَبِيرًا There's a Shaykh Qira'at ibn Kathir where he says, وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَ ثَمَّ رَأَيْتَ نَعِيمًا وَمَلِكًا كَبِيرًا Which means when you look, you will see the great king. And this is in line with our aqeedah because we say as Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah that we will be able to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hereafter. This Shaykh Qira'an supports this view of, of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Additionally, uh, we find, as I mentioned, that Shaykh Qira'at play a role in understanding tafsir of an ayah. So there's an ayah, حَافِذُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاتِ الْوُسْطَى So the question is, Allah Ta'ala is saying in this ayah that safeguard your salah, preserve your salah, and also preserve the wusta salah. So the question is, what is wusta salah? There are many opinions, there are many discussions regarding it. Um, one, there was a recitation that was attributed to Aisha anha where she said that الْوُسْطَى So she added the word asr and because it doesn't conform to the continental skeleton we say that it is a shad qira'ah but from this shad qira'ah we can uh, conclude or we understand that one valid opinion for salatul wusta is asr that the wusta salah that is being identified here in the in this verse refers to asr salah Although others identified that the salah can be fajr, so on and so forth. But we find that the shad qira'ah can aid the position of those who say salat al-wusta is asr. So it, it plays, a, it plays a, a big role in understanding the Qur'an as well. Okay. Understood. And um, so I just did wanted to ask again about who were these major qura'ah? Very good, mashallah. So these major qura'ah, I mean... They um, they were the most number one. They were the most qualified in the in the, in their time period. So they were basically in the time. Many of them were considered the atba'ut tabi'in. Uh, although, if you look at the ten qiraat, um, which includes the qiraat of Abu Ja'far, Yaqub, and Khalaf al-Ashib, Imam Abu Ja'far was considered to be a tabi'i because he had met and he even led Ibn Umar an in salah as the book's document. So they were students of, some of them were students of Tabi'in, meaning they were students of the students of the Sahaba. So we find that they were in the golden age of Islam. They were uh, students of Quran from the earliest generation. And in their time period, in the city that they lived, they were known to be the most famous teacher. What that meant was that although there were many teachers in Syria, and as an FYI, I forgot to include this detail, Abu Bakr al-Mujahid, he says that in these five cities, these seven teachers were the most famous, but they were also the most famous in the cities that were near them. Right. So it wasn't that their recitation was only known in Kufa or Basra or Mecca, Medina or Sham, rather the cities that were parallel to them, adjacent to them. Many of those living there were familiar with the, uh, the recitation of these uh, Qur'an. So first off, they were students of uh, Tabi'in. They were students of the most famous uh, reciters of the Qur'an, number one. Number two, they were the most famous teachers of the Qur'an. And they had many teachers. Imam, Imam Nafi, he, had, he took Qur'an from 70 Tabi'in. He says he took the Qur'an from 70 Tabi'in. And many of these Qur'an took from the, from the Tabi'in. And so that's number one. Number two, 
they were the most famous teacher in their city. So although there were many teachers in the city that they were in, their uh, recitation was the most famous, and they had the most students. That's how you can tell they were the most famous, because they had the most students. Everyone was coming to them to learn the Qur'an. Although there were other teachers or there were other um, highly regarded figures in those cities. So for example, in Madinat Manawara, you had Imam Nafi, and also you had Imam Malik. Imam Malik had his own Qira'ah, but he wasn't teaching that Qira'ah, so therefore it wasn't transmitted. Imam Nafi' was a teacher of the Qur'an, right? He was teaching his uh, Qira'ah. He had many, many students. And even when a person would come to Imam Malik to ask about an issue, the very famous issue, someone came to Imam Malik and said, um, should I recite Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim in Salam audibly or softly? He said, Imam Malik said, this is a mas'ala, this is an issue of Qira'ah, go ask Imam Nafi' because this is what he's known for. Even though he knew the answer. But he wanted to teach the student a principle, which is that you ask the leaders of every science uh, the masail that are pertaining to that science. You don't ask someone who's not um, an expert in that science a question about what you have regarding that science. So you don't ask a mechanic about uh, medicine, even though a mechanic may know something about medicine. Right? Likewise, you want to know about Qira'at, you ask the leaders in the field of Qira'at about Qira'at. So Imam Nafi' was the most famous teacher in Medina. Although Abu Ja'far, who was number eight in the ten, he was also in Medina al but Imam Nafi' was more famous than him, actually. He was actually more famous, although Imam Nafi' was a student of Abu Ja'far. He was a student of Abu Ja'far, but he, he was the most famous. He had more students, so therefore... Uh, his Abu Bakr al-Mujahid decided to document his recitation in his book. Likewise, in, in Kufa, you had Imam Kisai, Imam Hamza, Imam Asim. All three of them were very famous. They, didn't, they were the most famous in one after the other. One after the other. So Imam Kisai, then Imam Hamza, then Imam Asim. They were all famous, uh, the, the most famous teachers in, in Kufa when they were uh, teaching Quran. And um, same thing with the other cities as well. So Abu Amr from Basra, Ibn Amir from Sham. So they were the most famous teachers in their city and they had the most students. And as uh, Abu Bakr bin Mujahid mentioned in his book, Kitab al-Saba'a, he says, I chose those teachers who everyone in the city had, um, had uh, consensus regarding their recitation. And then he said, I also, uh, and, and they were also in conformance to these three uh, conditions. So very briefly, like that's who these seven uh, teachers were. Each each qari we can go through and mention a lengthy bio, biography, but I think hopefully that that answers your question. And then, b- before we kind of move on to some of the other stuff, I wanted to ask: you had said that Arabic uh, was one of the conditions, mm-hmm. um, and yet it's commonly held that the Quran is one of the sources of the Arabic language, that is to say what is correct and what is incorrect. So how can we use Arabic to determine if a particular reading is grammatically good? Yeah, yeah. I understand. Yeah, I understand your question, definitely. And this is a very good question. It's, um, it's a question that comes to anyone's mind when they deeply analyze the, these three uh, conditions. So um, what we find is that, as I mentioned, Imam Tabari didn't include Arabic as a condition. And therefore... Although others did, many who talk about these three conditions today 
say that the two main principles of these, the two main conditions of the three conditions are that they have to conform to the constitutional skeleton of the Osmanic of the Osmanic uh, Mus'haf, and it has to have uh, an authentic chain of transmissions. And they say the third condition, which is, has to be in consistency with Arabic grammar, it is uh, it's automatically exists when the first two conditions are met. So with, when you line up the two conditions against each other, meaning conformity to the, to the continental skeleton and authentic chain of transmission, it's possible that you can have a recitation that conforms to the continental skeleton of the Osmanic Mus'haf, but is not transmitted through a, a, to an authentic chain. And likewise, it's possible that you have a transmission that is uh, transmitted, a recitation that is transmitted through an authentic chain, but it doesn't conform to the continental skeleton. But never do you have that a recitation is in conformity with the continental skeleton. And it has an authentic chain, that it is not a consistency with Arabic grammar. That never happens. When those two conditions are there, when those two conditions are met and they exist, the, it's going to have consistency with Arabic grammar. For this reason, many have said that this third condition is not really a condition. It's being mentioned to make the uh, conditions what you can consider to be jamia and mana, that it is all-inclusive. It includes everything that exists and excludes everything that does not exist. So it's there to make the definition or the conditions jamia and mana, but it's, n it's not as important... I mean, it doesn't uh, play as much of a role in terms of exclusion as the other two uh, conditions do. You had mentioned earlier uh, your various um, certifications, and a lot of times we hear about, you know, so-and-so has a certification and a jaza in the 7 or the 10 or the 14. Um, can you just explain all of that really quickly for the listeners? What it means when someone says that, that they have these certifications? Yes, definitely. So today, uh, you find that the qiraat are taught based off of studying a book. And the books that are studied are number one, Shatabiya, number two, Durra, and number three, uh, Tayyibah. These are the most famous books that are studied. I'm not saying they're only, they are the only books. I'm not saying that they are the only books, but they are, these are the most famous. So when you find uh, many people who say that they have an authentic, uh, a certificate in the seven qiraat, this is because they only studied Imam Shatabi's book and they only recited according to what Imam Shatabi documented in his book. But Imam Shatabi only documented seven qiraat because he was following Abu Amr al who documented seven. But in addition, there were, Ibn al-Jazdi came in the, tenth, uh, in the eighth century and he wrote a book called Durra where he added three to the seven. And again, he wasn't the first person to talk about ten. There were scholars from the fifth century, he also wrote a book on ten, as I mentioned earlier, Ibn al-Mihran al-Asbahani, he wrote a book called al al-Ashara. So when somebody says they have authentication in ten, that means they've studied Shatabiyya, which is seven, and Durra, which includes the three extra. So the way Imam Ibn al-Jazil even documents the three in Durra is, is brilliant. So Imam Shatabi is discussing all the rules, he's discussing all the principles, so on and so forth. Ibn al-Jazri, rahimahullah, like basically in Durra, when he wants you to understand the three, he says, okay, uh, he says, understand that Abu Ja'far is similar to this one reciter. And then uh, Ya'qub is similar to one of the other seven. And then Khalif al-Ashr is similar to one of the other seven. Here's how they are different. 
right? So he's basically showing that there's similarities, but there are still differences. And he's connecting the study of the three to the seven. So when someone says that they have an authentication a certificate in the seven, that means they've only studied Shal Tabiyah. If somebody says they have it in ten, <clears throat> that means they've studied Shal Tabiyah and Durrah. And when somebody's study is both the Shal Tabiyah and Durrah, it's considered today as a Qiraat as Sughra. When somebody studies, because in in the um, in the Sughra, when you study the seven and uh, three extra ten, you're only analyzing. A few things of each reciter of each party. However, there are recitations where you can analyze over uh, when you look at all ten recite recitations collectively. Ibn al-Jaz wrote a book called Tayyibah, where he transmits the qiraat through more than one thousand chains. So it's much more detailed, much more detailed. And when somebody studies Tayyibah and they recite um, and they get a certification in Tayyibah. That means they've studied those 1,000 chains and they have ijazah in the 10 qira'at, but what is known as al-kubara. In very brief, that's how uh, we can understand. There's more detail to it as well, but I think that's good enough for us to understand the basic details of the uh, certificates. I wanted to ask, and this is something that probably you should have asked earlier, but what was the relationship of the companions to the Qur'an? I mean, were they all... Um, uh, were they all people who memorized the Quran? Uh, did they know all the various interpretations and meanings? And, and of course, we know that they they were not all aware of different ways of reciting. Uh, but what about a, a lot of these other things? Good, very good, Ashley. Good question. So, first off, um, when you talk about the relationship of the companions uh, with the Quran. You can analyze their relationship in the time of the Prophet and outside the time of the Prophet if you wanted to differentiate between the relationship that the companions had. But very briefly put, we say many of the, uh, there are many companions who had memorized the entire Quran. But some of these companions who memorized the entire Quran did not do so in the lifetime of the Prophet. So, for example, Abdullah bin Mas'ud was a hafiz of the Quran, but he didn't finish in the time of the Prophet. He actually finished his memorization of the Quran. After the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And this is very important to know that uh, Many of the companions were mem- had memorized the Quran Because it also It also supports the fact That none of the Quran was lost Between the time of the Prophet ﷺ And Uthman Where they were compiling the Quran Some Orientalists they assert that The Quran was lost Why? Because there were companions That had passed away in the battle of Yamama Qurra that passed in the battle of Yamama So 70 companions that passed away in the battle of Yamama And they said with those 70 companions, much of the Qur'an was lost as well. But that's false. Why? Because there are many more uh, uh, companions who had memorized the Qur'an, not just 70. So we understand for sure that many companions had memorized the Qur'an in the time of the Prophet and also after the time of the Prophet Now, despite, that they, despite them having memorized the Qur'an, as you mentioned, all of them were not familiar with the variant recitations. Some of them were because uh, they interacted with one another and they saw it. So in the story of Ubay ibn Ka'ab, I mentioned that he heard two others reciting in a way that was different than him. I mentioned the story of Umar al-Law'an and Hisham bin Hakim. There are other stories that are similar to that as well. Because they 
heard the recitation of the companions and they saw that it was different, they then became aware of the various recitations. But this didn't take place for all the companions. So therefore, many companions were not familiar with the variant recitations and they did not become familiar with them until the time of Uthman and Allah. And we find that when they heard companions or others reciting in a way that they were not familiar with, they began arguing, so on and so forth. And this is what motivated Uthman to rescue the Ummah more or less and to combine and gather the Ummah on one Mus'haf. So uh, when it comes to the relationship of the companions with the variant recitations, some of them were aware within time of the Prophet and some of them were not. But by the time of Uthman, many were aware. Many were aware because they be- began interacting, they began discussing the different recitations, and even at times they disagreed. They disagreed, okay. Um, it's mentioned that when the companions were compiling and uh, the, 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 the Qur'an and they were forming the continental skeleton, there were times that they disagreed. And then Uthman would come and reconcile. And one of the ways that they would reconcile is they would say, okay, whoever learned this verse from the Prophet after his final recitation with Jibreel, okay, we will ask that companion and we'll see what he says. And we find that Zayd bin Thabit learned the Qur'an twice. From the Prophet after his final recitation with Jibreel This is why he was is another reason why he was chosen to compile the Quran. So when that person came, when that companion came, many times it was Zayd and Thabit, sometimes it was others according another companion according to different uh, narrations. He came and then they accepted what that companion would say. So in the time of Uthman Allah, they were more familiar with the variant stations and therefore they accepted it. And that's why they facilitated it in the concept of skeleton that they formed the time of Uthman Allah. And when they were forming the continental skeleton, they didn't just compile one mushaf. They didn't just compile one copy of the Qur'an. They compiled many copies of the Qur'an. Um, uh, there's a difference of opinion in regards to how many copies they compiled. Many say five. The most famous opinions are five or seven. And amongst those, um, uh, those two opinions, the most famous, it seems, is five. And the reason why they form, they made five mushaf, uh, copies of the Qur'an was Uthman Allah wanted to send one copy of the Qur'an with a companion to one of those five cities that I identified earlier. And additionally, because the cities that the companions were going to be sent to were familiar with different recitations. So each copy of the Qur'an and the consonants of skeleton that existed within it was slightly different than the other. So we say when it comes to the consonants of skeleton of the Qur'an in relation to these five copies, there were about 49 differences where there was perhaps a word that existed in one that one copy that didn't exist in, in another, or a letter that existed in one copy that didn't exist in another. So they were familiar with all of these very recitations now when they were compiling the Qur'an in the time of Uthman ibn Laman. And additionally, of course, they would teach it to one another. They began conversing. And what we find in the time of the Sahaba, they weren't so concerned about just memorization. Um, they were concerned about memorizing and acting upon what they memorized and then adding to it in that manner. This is why we find the companions took many, many years to memorize the Qur'an. You don't find narrations uh, you've, uh, that they memorized in like less than a year or a year. We know Umar al-Law'an took eight years just to memorize Surah al-Baqarah. Right? And we find that even Abdullah Mas'ud al-Law'an, he could have memorized the entire Qur'an in time of the Prophet if he wanted to. But he didn't. He didn't memorize the entire Quran in the time of the Prophet Although he could have. He learned over 
28 juz, you can say. He says, I took more than 70 surahs from Prophet Sallam. And if he took more than 70 surahs, that means he took almost, um, he took perhaps almost 28 juz because the 30th juz begins with the 78th surah. So, I mean, he learned much much of the Quran in the time of the Prophet Sallam as the books identified. But he didn't finish until after the time of the Prophet Sallam because quantity was not their concern, quality was. And quality to them meant memorization and acting upon what they memorized or learning everything there was to learn about what they memorized. So this was more or less a relationship with the Quran when it, when it comes to memorization. And then, uh, and then with regard to uh, the, the, the companions who are most authoritative um, in, in terms of recitation or in terms of just knowledge about the Quran and its interpretation, uh, who were they? Very good question. So we find um, that there is a narration of the Prophet who says, if you are to take Quran, take it from four. And he identifies four companions who are Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, and Salim Awla Abi Hudayfa. So these are the four. But additionally, we find when we analyze the Asanid of Qiraat, when we, when we analyze the Asanid of Qiraat, meaning the chains of Qiraat that exist today, we find that major all of these chains revolve around more or less eight companions. So these four, they also revolve around Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, Abu Darda, uh, and a few others, but altogether all eight. Okay, and then I think now that we've built up enough background information, I, I can I can ask a question, um, the contents of which we touched upon throughout this episode, but I think it's important to ask right here and right now, what um, what are the ahruf and and what is the relationship of the qiraat with ahruf? Okay, very good um, question. So um, your question is important because it helps us, uh, us identify or understand the hadith of the Prophet The Prophet says, "Unzil ala ahruf." That the Quran was revealed upon seven letters. So what are these seven letters? So this hadith is narrated by over 21 companions. So it's a, it's a massively transmitted uh, hadith. And when it comes to the meaning of what seven letters refers to, there is so much discussion. There are books that are written on this subject. And I've read a lot of what has been written, and I also assign many of the students who I, I teach this with our class to read these works and write summaries. But we, what we can say is there's... Like uh, there's there's many, there are many opinions in regards to what the meaning of the uh, uh, of the word seven letters is. Uh, Ibn Jazari rahimahullah he says that he pondered over the hadith for thirty years before Allah Taala opened up for him the understanding of what the seven letters referred to. Ibn Kathir in his Fadail al Quran he mentions five opinions. There are many opinions, um, but he mentions five. He says it refers to the inclusion of dialects. He said it could refer to the dialects of seven local tribes. He says it can refer to seven topics of the Quran. It could also refer to seven types of differences. It could also refer to synonyms that early on a, a companion was, a word could be replaced with its synonym because of the difficulty of um, memorizing or reciting a particular word. So, um, but amongst these differences, there seem to be two that are the most famous and the strongest. When you read the works, of, that have been written on the interpretation of the hadith on the Quran we find that two opinions are the most famous which are number one that refers to seven dialects however those who say that 
seven letters refers to seven dialects, there's no agreement on the seven dialects themselves. So there's a difference of opinion regarding what those seven dialects were. Number one. Number two, and this seems to be the strongest of all opinions, Allah Ta'ala knows best, um, but it seems to be the strongest opinion, which is that it refers to seven types of differences that exist within the Qira'at. Okay. Um, and then, what are these seven differences? There are also differences of opinion regarding them. But, and if you, uh, uh, many of the contemporary works of Ulum al Quran discuss these differences. Um, and Imam Suyuti, uh, Imam Zulqani, and Ismailahim al Afan, and so many works discuss these seven differences. And when you read the seven differences that they identify, you'll see that it's not all the same, it's different. But despite them being the same, sorry, despite them being different, they all agree that it refers to seven differences that exist within the Qira'at. And the differences are very, it's, they're very subtle. Meaning those who identify seven differences that are different than others, it's because they're saying, okay, this scholar identified seven, but two of the seven they can put into one category. And Ibn al-Jazi very beautifully, he, uh, in his Nashr al Qira'at al-Ashr, he identifies what these seven are, and he mentions uh, them very beautifully. He says that it refers to seven differences that exist within the uh, furush. Right? Furush refers to different ways that those 2,000 words could be read uh, and then how all those different ways revolve around seven differences. So he identifies what those seven differences are. So, um, amongst those seven differences are uh, like changing of a letter. And so so fatabayyanu in surah in Surah Hujarat, there's an ayah that has the word فتبينوا, that same word in a different Qiraq we read as فتثبتوا, so there's a difference of a letter there. There's also a difference of pronunciation. So one word is could be read as Salah, another word could be read as Salah. Right? But Ibn, some have identified this uh, to be a difference, meaning the pronunciation. Ibn al-Jazid doesn't agree with that. But that, that's an example of a difference. Ibn al-Jazid says Salah and Salah. Salah and Salah would not be one of the seven differences. Others have said it is. Um, there are other differences as well, like difference that exists. If one Qira'ah recites a word as plural, another recites it as singular. So, amanatihim, amanatihim, so on and so forth. Um, so, more or less, it refers to seven differences according to this opinion that exists within the Qira'at. And then if you go with this opinion, if you go with the opinion that refers to seven differences that exist in the Qira'at, you're going to understand the connection and the correlation between Qira'at and Ahruf. And I hope that answers, uh, yeah, I think that answers the question, correct? Yeah, I mean, I just had a couple more follow-up questions with, uh, with sure. regard to this. I, I wonder, uh, were the companions aware of the, 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 the meaning of this hadith? So we don't find there to be an explanation of what this hadith means uh, in the, from the time of the Sahaba. Does this mean that they they, they didn't they all just knew and didn't need to ask it, or uh, I mean, because if this is something very important and we don't really have any 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 interpretations of this hadith that that come, we we have the hadith, uh, but no interpretations for something as important and central as this hadith. So I, I wonder, was this was this a topic that was discussed? So what we would say, I mean, what what the scholars mention in their works is that the Sahaba would have been familiar with it and anything that they needed to know of about these seven ahruf 
facilitated to them when the Prophet would teach them the Quran or when they would teach one another the Quran. So it's important, the importance of the hadith lies in the fact that we know that the Quran can be recited and read in multiple ways because it was revealed in multiple ways. Um, now the question is, do these seven ahruf exist today? We know they exist in the time of the Prophet And I'm asking this question because it'll speak to your point of how important is the understanding of this hadith. Right, so what is uh, what are uh, do the seven ahruf exist today? Right, some have said yes, and some have said no. The dominant opinion is that we don't identify a number, a specific number, but we say in as many as, uh, as ahruf that can be facilitated through the continental skeleton that the companions formed in time of Uthman are the amount of these seven ahruf that exist. We don't know what that is, whatever was essential, whatever remained. Whatever was not abrogated, whatever was considered Qur'an, was facilitated by the Sahaba. And the different ways that the words could be read, the different uh, the differences that existed within those, the five or seven copies of the continental skeleton of the Qur'an, right? Um, and and that, that are facilitated, the different ways that are facilitated through those different copies, we know. And that's what's important for us, the fact that these variant readings were preserved in the continental skeleton that the Sahaba uh, formed in the time of Uthman and the fact that they have been preserved up until today is what is important and we know all the different ways that they can be read. So how many are there? Allah Ta'ala knows best. But whatever the Sahaba understood to exist from these seven akhruf, whether it was seven or all or none, they facilitated in, that con- in the formation of the continental skeleton and that's what has reached us today, and that's what is important. Thank you for that. And, you know, we're concluding now, and I am very, very grateful uh, to Maulana Arif for giving me so much of his time uh, and giving such such an important topic, uh, you know, uh, its due attention. I wanted to make a request and ask the Maulana if you could recite for us pretty much in the various recitations. Sure, inshallah. However, when whenever I'm asked to recite, um, I mean, it's always a pleasure to recite, alhamdulillah. Uh, but I always tell those who ask me to recite in the Qiraat that there are many world-renowned reciters who are experts in this field, such as like Sheikh Abdul Rashid al-Sufi, Sheikh Ayman Sway, Sheikh Ahmed Isama Asarawi, who I would always reference before I would tell the students, okay, listen to them, they've mastered it, and they are the ones who should be followed. And their recitation can be seen as the best example of uh, a correct recitation of the Qur'an. Uh, but that being said, because you've asked, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and recite some words in the room. Thank you. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem Bismillahir rahmanir rahim Alif lam Alif Lam Mim Thalik Al-Kitab La Rayba Fih Hudallil Muttaqeen Thalik Al-Kitab La Rayba Fihi Hudallil Muttaqeen Thalik Al-Kitab La Rayba فيه هدى للمتقين 
ذلك الكتاب لا ريب فيه هدى للمتقين هدى للمتقين الذين يؤمنون بالغيب ويقيمون الصلاة الذين يؤمنون بالغيب ويقيمون الصلاة الذين يؤمنون بالغيب ويقيمون الصلاة ويقيمون الصلاة ومما رزقناهم ينفقون ومما رزقناهم ينفقون ويقيمون الصلاة ومما رزقناهم ينفقون والذين يؤمنون بما أنزل إليك وما أنزل من قبلك والذين يؤمنون بما أنزل إليك وما أنزل من قبلك والذين يؤمنون بما أنزل إليك وما أنزل من قبلك والذين يؤمنون بما أنزل إليك وما أنزل من قبلك والذين يؤمنون بما أنزل إليك وما أنزل من قبلك والذين يؤمنون بما أنزل إليك وما أنزل من قبلك وبالآخرة هم يوقنون 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 أولئك على هدى من ربهم 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 وأولئك هم المفلحون وأولئك هم المفلحون وأولئك هم المفلحون وأولئك هم المفلحون صدق الله العظيم So what I recited in was what is known as Riwayat Al-Jama'a Bil-Waqf which is that um, I'm reciting in all the different ways and each time I'm taking a new breath for a different way that I'm reciting because there is a way to do it where you do the different ways in the same breath. But uh, many have said that this way is better to recite it while taking a breath and then doing a different way. So I did that. And additionally, I recited in what was known as what is known as uh, Tayyibah. 
so this is not uh, the normal um, this is also which is known as Kubara so therefore I included some more differences Thank you so very much for that, uh, Moana. And um, again, I can't thank you enough for giving me so much of your time today. I would like the audience to know that um, the Moana has graciously offered to answer any questions that you may have had while listening to this episode. Um, understandably, this is a um, this is a somewhat technical field, uh, and people will will naturally have questions. And and um, again, I'm grateful for Moana Arif, um, who has. Uh, you know, volunteer to answer these questions. So feel free. I will tag him in the uh, when I when I upload this on Twitter. So feel free to send him a direct message, or you could just reply to the 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 podcast episode link itself. Uh, with that, thank you so very much, Malana, for giving us all your time. Zakhmalakhar, and thank you for allowing me to be of some benefit. And I enjoyed my time with you in this podcast. Zakhmalakhar, inshallah.